All in the Industry is sponsored by Pop Menu, which helps turn first-time guests into regulars for your restaurant. For a limited time, get $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash hrn. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021. This is our 292nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is, is an outstanding restaurateur with places in Philadelphia and Manhattan, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. And then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be supportive of women in the workplace. Yes, we have come a long way over the past decades, but women still face challenges from equal pay to job opportunities and even having a voice. So let's remember to support one another and provide guidance and mentorship, especially to the younger generation. We can not only learn from each other and empower one another, but together break the glass ceiling. That's my tip today. Now I'm thrilled to have my guest joining me. It is Ellen Yin. She is the co-founder and owner of High Street Hospitality Group, which includes some of the country's most celebrated dining establishments which are A Kitchen Plus Bar, Fork, High Street Philly, and High Street Provisions in Philadelphia, and High Street on Hudson in Manhattan. A graduate of the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, Ellen has over 21 years of experience as an owner and operator. She's been honored with Philadelphia Business Journal's Women of Distinction Award in 2020, and is is a multi-year nominee for Outstanding Restaurateur by the James Beard Foundation Awards, among many other accolades. Without further ado, Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sherry. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining me. I'm, I haven't seen you in a bit. I miss you. <laughs> I know. It's crazy to have not seen people in such a long time. I know. I feel people are, are starting to go back out and, and dine more, so I hope to see you soon. And I'm really, but I'm really great we connect today because you know I want to. I've I've known you for a while, but I don't know how how did you get started in the hospitality industry? Do you want to take us back a little bit to your childhood and kind of what inspired you to want to own restaurants? I know it's crazy, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, um, you know, I am just like so many other kids across the country who started out their first job in high school as a teenager in a restaurant. And I think that's an important thing to note that restaurants are often the first place that people get their jobs. And I was a bus girl in a French restaurant in my hometown in Monmouth County, New Jersey, where I, um, you know, just fell in love with the industry. And I, I, I think part of it came from the fact that first I was the child of um, uh, my parents were immigrants from China and my father was an electrical engineer and my mother was a homemaker and my father wanted nothing but for me to be a doctor, a lawyer or engineer. And I was one of those kids who was um, very independent and Fuck this system. <laughs> and I did not want to be, I might have, could have been a physician, I guess. Um, I do love healthcare, but I, um, I, I love arts and um, started working in a restaurant and just feeling like the environment was so diverse and 
I love service. What can I say? Um, you know, when my mother would entertain, that would be one of my favorite parts. Um, I would make recipes from Bon Appetit and Gourmet Magazine and, you know, make my father eat them. Uh, but um, I just fell in love with working at this restaurant when I was a junior and senior in high school. And um, that stuck with me throughout my, um, you know, young adult years. And I came to Philadelphia to go to Penn. And um, I had many um, crises where I couldn't decide really what I wanted to do. But it always came down to the restaurant and I missed it immensely. Um, and so I, I thought the right thing to do was to um, take a semester off and work from work in a restaurant at home. And I did that. And when I came back, I figured out I need to get a job in a restaurant to make my way through college, not just to pay my way for, for, through college, because I'm not going to do what my parents want me to do. But also um, I need to um, uh, work for my own sanity because I love it so much. Yeah, well, I'm glad you followed that. And, you know, thinking of my background, uh, same thing. I got a job in a restaurant as soon as I could drive <laughs> right. and have a long history of working in restaurants. It was something I think when you have that bug for the hospitality industry, it just it drives, you know, it, it, it drives you in and uh, um, you want to be a part of it. So how did you then go about opening, I know you opened Fork in 1997. So were you, where were you, what were you doing before that? Were you um, writing a business plan or? or right, right. Yeah. So um, knowing that I wanted to open a restaurant at some point in the future, I took a class in entrepreneurial management and uh, wrote a business plan about a property in Old City, Philadelphia that we turned into a jazz club on the first floor and condos on the upper floors. And that kind of is the model of, of, of so many restaurants in urban environments. Um, but I learned that it was going to take a lot of capital to renovate the entire building. And that stuck with me that I wasn't going to be able to fulfill my dream that easily. <laughs> my parents weren't going to give me the money and I didn't have the money. So um, I knew that I would have to get a job. And first I, I thought working in an advertising agency would be up my alley because it's a creative, you know, create, there's a lot of creativity in, in marketing and advertising. But I ended up um, going through a number of different jobs in my early 20s, including fundraising and um, uh, event planning, and I, I just didn't feel the same satisfaction. So, not knowing what to do, I went to grad school, <laughs> and I got my MBA in healthcare management because, like I said, there was something also about healthcare, taking care of people. I think that really attracted me about that um, industry, and I ended up. Um, getting a job in a consulting firm. And within three months, I knew it wasn't for me. So I worked with a bunch of people kind of on a freelance basis doing projects here and there. And then I thought, well, I'll take a stab at working in a hospital. Meanwhile, I found out working in a hospital, uh, which I really loved, but it's like working in a big corporation. So I didn't fit in there. And so finally I decided I'm going to, I'm going to, take a shot at it. I was flipping through food and wine, I think. And I saw all these 30 something year old people opening restaurants. And I'm like, well, why can't that be me? So I started putting together a business plan at that point, taking that plan that I had started in grad in undergrad. And I, um, I happened to find a spot that I really loved in old city, Philadelphia. And, um, and kind of the rest is history. We put together a business plan. Um, my classmate from grad school, Roberto Sella, has we've been partners for twenty some years, and um, you know we decided that we wanted to open a restaurant that um, that uh, 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 was a neighborhood restaurant, a destination, and um, we were able to get some bank financing for it. Wow, that's amazing. So, I mean, the fact that you've been, you've, Fork has, has been going strong all these years. I mean, how has the 
is incredible. And how has the concept changed or has it changed from the beginning? And you've, you've changed chefs over the years. Um, and I'm, I was there, God, when was I there? Like about now it feels like big eight years ago or something. I don't, I don't know. I had a wonderful experience with our, our good friend Pichet Ong and how we met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but over the years, like from the beginning to, to where you are today, how has the concept changed? Well, I think the heart of what Fork is has remained the same. And there's two things that have remained consistent over the years. One is that my first chef, Anne-Marie Lasher, and I both worked at the White Dog Cafe under Judy Wicks. And the White Dog Cafe was a restaurant in Philadelphia that um, that really uh was committed to farm to table as well as social issues and community. And, and Judy Wicks is an incredible mentor and, you know, that model of being able to take what you believe in and incorporating it into your business was really important to us. Um, Anne-Marie really introduced the concept of, of buying seasonally and locally and using, you know, great farm products at the very beginning of Fork, and that continued through every chef um, to today. Um, and we've had five, five or six chefs throughout the 25 years. So that has continued. And I think our commitment to creating a great community around us is really important. That means the people who are included in the building, our, our staff, our guests, the immediate kind of, um, you know, um, neighborhood, which is Old City, we've always remained really committed to making sure that all three of those things um, are uh, vibrant and um, healthy. Yeah. So, so when did you, I guess, when did you get the bug or the idea that you should um, open another place and more restaurants <laughs> and add that to your plate? <laughs> well, you know, like any entrepreneur, <laughs> you can't stop yourself. Um, and right. I, I think that at the very beginning, um, you know, Anne-Marie and I had, had um, never expected the reaction, the response from the media that Fork received from the very beginning. And, you know, we ended up splitting up as partners because I wanted to grow and I think she really wanted to have, you know, a cozy neighborhood place. And and as um, as we got busier, I saw more opportunity and I, I wanted it to continue. And of course, people were coming up to me and asking me if I wanted to open a place here and open a place there, just like they still are. But <laughs> uh, but um, I wasn't really able to successfully execute that until 2004. So that was about seven years in. Um, you know, we really started out as a small business where we were um, owner operated and sh- she and Marie was the working chef and I was the working general manager. And, you know, it took some time for us to be able to build the management structure and uh, to get that really going so that we could expand. And um, Anne-Marie ended up opening her own business in 2000 uh, or 2001. And at that point, um, you know, we had moved on to a new chef. And um, by 2004, we were planning to take over another restaurant on the other side of town. And we were also expanding our own physical plant to include a private dining room and this little bakery gourmet um, store called Fork, etc., which was the predecessor to High Street. Yeah, I, I saw that um, I was when I was I was reading more about your background, because um, I I was only familiar before with High Street uh, and um, and that you brought that concept also to New York City. But um, yeah, tell for people who don't know, like how is how I mean, how is High Street also it also um, what's the concept there and compared to what you're doing in Philly now to Manhattan? Cause I think you've changed it up a little bit. Right. So, you know, when we, uh, so many things have happened. Right. I know <laughs> it's really it into like a little 45 minute podcast, but let's. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and when you're talking about 25 years, there's so much, so many things have, have influenced each other. Um, right. But uh, we opened high street on Hudson six years ago 
in the West Village um, on Hudson and Horatio Street. An amazing neighborhood. I love the location. It's a cobblestone street just south of the Meatpacking District. And, you know, we started out there um, uh, planning it in 2014. And as you know, uh, my business partner, Eli Culp, who was the chef, was planning to be the chef of High Street on Hudson. And then he was on the Amtrak accident and all that was happening as we were opening High Street on Hudson. Um, and um, by the time we opened in December, which, um, you know, in, in restaurant development terms, that was fairly quick, I guess. <laughs> but um, by the time we opened in December 2015, um, you know, it was Eli's role was already starting to become evident that he wasn't going to be able to actually be the chef behind the kitchen cooking the food for the guests. And so at that time, we had planned for um, a transition to New York, including a New York based team and including our Philadelphia original High Street Hospitality Group folks like Alex Bois, who went on to open Lost Bread, and John Nobler and Sam Kincaid, who later opened up Cadence, they all came with us to help Eli and I open High Street on Hudson. And, um, you know, High Street on Hudson started out as an all-day concept, just like High Street on Market, with a great breakfast and sandwich program. Maybe we didn't understand the New York market as well as we should have, where Everybody who walked by was asking us, when are we opening for dinner? And we're like, oh, we're opening for lunch first. Um, so we opened first for breakfast and lunch with our sandwich program. And then we eventually opened for dinner in Feb mid-February. And, um, you know, there was a lot of excitement around our, um, our opening. Yeah, there was. I, rem I mean, I remember the excitement about it, and I'm, I'm a huge fan. I, it's... Um I was so glad that you opened in New York City, even though Philly isn't that far from from here. But um, and and I, you know, I know with with um, with the chef, Chef Eli Culp. How, I mean, his 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 accident. It was it was very you know a tragic accident that happened, and I I'm sure it 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 changed so many things with the company um, and with your role and. Uh, how what's his involvement now i've and i have to say i've been listening to his podcast um the chef radio podcast and it's awesome i think yeah. it's, he's really good um so i'm glad that he's he's now he's he's doing that yeah um eli is an extremely uh talented and resilient person and you know, I, I'm sure that you've heard some of the story, the first podcast where he describes the feeling um, yeah. that he had at depression and, you know, of this 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 life changing event, um, which really screwed things up, you know, um, for him because he was on the top of his game at that time. I mean, you know, he had been uh, Food and Wine Best New Chef. He had been nominated for Best Chef Mid-Atlantic. Um, and he was achieving his dream, which was to open a restaurant in New York City, and then everything changed. So, uh, you know, at the very beginning, I think um, that we all rallied as much as possible to try to get things done um, and um, so that Eli could come back and, you know, really, um, you know, kind of just jump back right into it. Um, I think that most people don't know what the prognosis or the, um, uh, the challenges of a, a spinal cord injury is. There are many people who can get better and many people who can't get better and it's so much is unknown, you know, and so we just kept hoping that Eli would get better. And um, I'm sure he did, too. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think that um, that his um, as as he started to um, maybe accept his situation and adapt to his situation more, um, he became stronger and stronger mentally and, um, you know, uh, 
you know, he, he just is, he's an incredible person to work with. And um, we continue to work on projects together and um, he's not as involved with the day-to-day um, operations, but he has a, you know, a son that he adores and he's very busy raising and, um, and, you know, like I said, we're, we're still very involved with um, the businesses that we operate. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's, he's, he's gotten to where he is now and your relationship that you continue to work together. Um, Cause, and you, and, and how you've pulled through um, that time period and even, and now, I mean, we should talk a little bit about this past year with the pandemic. Um, how was it for you? How's it going? Um, you know, I think we're starting <laughs> to get to the, maybe a bit of the light at the end of, of this tunnel we've been in. Well, you know me, I'm, I'm always very honest. And I will say that uh, last March was um, very gloomy, that I really thought that, um, one, first of all, having to lay off so many people, I just never imagined in my mind that a pandemic was going to take my my business down. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And um, I really thought that it was only going to be a few weeks. And my PR agency, um, Foxglove, um, Gia Vecchio, said to me, why don't you go on this IRC, Independent Restaurant Coalition call? Because they're all talking about the same thing you are, and and maybe that will shed some light. And so I took her advice, and I um, joined the calls, and um, I started to have hope because I heard people who, you know, in the industry who I revere, basically feeling the exact same thing that I did and wondering what they're going to do. And um, over over the course of the next few weeks, relief started to become evident that there was going to be forms of relief available. And um, that started to um, build momentum. At the same time, we raised some money and we were able to do some frontline worker meals for Fork and um, you know, we had to unfortunately keep High Street on Hudson closed because um, so many of our staff returned to their, you know, their original homes, um, many of them outside of New York City. But um, also there was a travel quarantine for Philadelphia, for Pennsylvanians to quarantine for 14 days. So I did not go to New York from, I would say, March eighth or something like that until um i want to say sometime at that summer i i ha- did not visit new york city which is weird yeah <laughs> but what the you know i mean it's weird but it's like it's it it, it is what it it was required you know right so, right but um, it's like you lock up your house or um you know and um, you haven't been there in such a long time that it's so strange when you actually re-enter it, you know? Right. So, and then I saw you, you partnered you with, um, or collaborated with Brunetti Pizza. Um, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it became evident that um, there was so much to do and to rebuild and that because we had to part ways with so many of our team members, um, that we were going to have to rebuild. And also it was really hard to find people at, even in the middle of the pandemic. Um, you know, when we reopened for outside, not everybody was in a hurry to jump back in and start waiting on people. So, um, I knew that I wasn't going to have the time to, um, really focus on New York. And I, I have to be honest, I, I didn't know whether we could even, reopen or succeed in New York City. And my landlord actually, um, you know, we were really fortunate. Our landlord said to us, listen, this is not my first um, time where something in New York City that, that the economy has has not been at its best. And I powered through it. And I think you guys should, too. And um, he said to us, listen, I'll work with you. And we were very lucky because that's not the answer that a lot of people received. So knowing that he was committed to helping us and and knowing that, um, you know, we wanted to see it to the other side, 
we reopened it in mid in late August, but I knew that I could not do it myself. And, um, and quite honestly, I knew that we couldn't open the bakery again because, um, even though baked goods were one of the top items that, that people wanted during the pandemic, um, the cost of operating it and the, you know, potential for it, um, to, uh, not be able to, um, cover itself in a time when we had to at least cover ourselves, um, uh, wasn't going to work. So I, I, I thought to myself, who can I, who can I partner with to help us through this situation? And, um, I had been friendly with James, um, Shields from Brunetti pizza and knew him as an operator. And I knew that, um, he was from New York city and, knew the neighborhood really well. And so I asked him, I said, Hey, would you have any interest in helping us, you know, do a pop-up or something here just to keep, keep us alive. And, um, he said he definitely was interested. And so, um, we, the three of us met Eli, myself and James to try to brainstorm what, what could be done. And he really felt that the neighborhood needed, um, a seafood restaurant and a place where they could have drinks. And so that's what we decided that we would, would do, um, from August until, um, you know, until we figured out what would, what was going to happen. So we're still figuring out what's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. I, I give you a lot of credit. It's so, I mean, it's, it's so much and we're just now we're, I mean, you have your, I mean, multiple restaurants that all dealing with and, and getting through this time. Um, but I'm glad you were able to figure out that partnership and collaborate. I mean, I think there's been, there has been great things that have come from this time period and with the IRC and, and everything, you know, that, you know, uniting with people who have the same issues and can relate. So I'm glad that Gia uh, got you on that call. (laughs) Um, I, I, let me ask you my question from my last guest on episode 291. I had on Fanny Gerson. She's the chef and founder of La New Yorkina and Fan Fan Donuts in New York city. And she wants to know what's the one thing that has surprised you during the pandemic about yourself that has helped or changed you in any way with what we do? Well, I think that, um, uh, I think that, um, that we all have a certain degree of, um, resiliency inside ourselves, And I, I really, really pushed to, um, uh, make myself come through it because it's so easy to have said, oh, we're not going to reopen. I'm just going to move on or whatever. You know, I, I, I think that that resiliency is something that I maybe I, I never thought about about myself. Um, and, um, you know, the more I thought about it, the more things I was able to do. And um, that's the crazy part is at first I was so overwhelmed by like everything. And then and then I ended up. <laughs> doing more things than I even ever expected that I, I would be able to fit into my schedule, which is just crazy because, um, there's so many things going on, but, um, we ended up, um, creating a pop-up at fork called the wonton project. I don't know if I told you about that or not, but, um, we I, raised... I found it online a little bit about it, but yeah, tell tell us about it. So, you know, we were trying to fork has been the most challenging of all our operations, um, a kitchen is kind of in the middle of downtown and there are a lot of young people who live there and people are out and about, um, despite, you know, whatever restrictions there were. And, um, uh, Fork is in the tourist district and it relies a lot on business travelers and, um, you know, celebrations and private events and things like that. So, um, so, you know, I knew that that was going to be the toughest one. And this is something that was also different for me was, um, you know, I'm a, um, Asian woman who operates a contemporary American restaurant. And, you know, I never really thought about my own heritage taking any role in 
what I do. And, you know, maybe that's just because I've grown up at a time period when being belonging was so important. You know, when I was a child, we were the only Asian family in our my hometown. And, um, you know, I never really I always thought about wanting to kind of integrate, you know what I mean? And so um, when we were trying to figure out what to do with Fork, I always thought that um, my mother's cooking was amazing. And I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe I should do something um, with my mother's home cooking. And then I, I, I called Steven Starr up one day and I said, hey, I'm just seeing how you are and what you're up to. And he was he was bummed out too. And he said, have you ever thought about going out to the suburbs? And I was like, not really. And he's just like, well, what about opening an Asian restaurant? You would kill it, you know? And I, I thought to myself, huh, maybe, maybe that idea of my mother's cooking is ripe right now. Um, it seems like a lot of the takeout food is ethnically oriented and, um, you know, maybe this is something that we could do. And Sherry, I don't cook. I don't know if you know that about me, but <laughs> now I know. <laughs> I, I actually um, never cook except for to heat up stuff for my mother. And I love to cook. I mean, it's not that I don't know how to cook, uh -huh. but I just never cook. And so um, there's and and there's nothing in her repertoire that I really know how to make except dumplings and wontons. My brother learned everything, and all I got was that because we would sit around the table as a kid and we would make wontons and dumplings. So I was just like, "Huh, well, dumplings I've seen, but wontons I have not. So maybe, maybe we should create a pop-up ghost kitchen around wontons." And so I worked with our chef George Madowski at Fork to um, recreate my mother's recipe, and we did so much R and D, and we were ready to go. We had everything going, and then you know we reopened <laughs> and nothing <laughs> happened. And so then March rolls around and, um, you know, there was the, the um, all the violence in Atlanta and, you know, the, the lot of publicity around Asian discrimination. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe this is the time when we should be focusing on um, our, on, on letting people know that this is a thing. And so I decided that I would open it as a fundraiser for um, uh, anti-Asian discrimination and hate awareness. Um, and we donated all the proceeds to um, Advancing Justice and um, uh, Asian Americans United. And, um, you know, it, it now it's starting to have a life of its own. But um, but that received a lot of attention and um people seem to be really into it. Of course, the hot days of summer, 90 degrees are not when you really want to eat wontons, but, but hopefully um, it'll, you know, we can, we can get our act together and gain some traction and, you know, continue to support that mission, but, um, you know, create a life for the wonton project. Wow. You're, you're amazing. That's, that's awesome. I, I would like to eat your wontons all year. Uh, <laughs> there's no season for that for me. So um, yeah, good for you. That's that's really 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 awesome. Um, I, I don't know how you do everything you do, but somehow you do. <laughs> so on that note, let's take a little break. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience, and then the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Bartenders wanted, Diageo Bar Academy is willing to train. Each week in June, Diageo Bar Academy hosts new master classes that you need to succeed this summer. Sign up today at diageobaracademy.com. Under training, click on Master Classes. You'll find a large format cocktail series, including draft cocktails, frozen, pre-batched, and group serves, as well as a summer served up series with cocktails plus popsicles and all the ways that you can make your menu pop during the hotter months. To see all events and RSVP for one of the many can't miss master classes, go to diageobaracademy.com. Diageo Bar Academy offers free training and resources for you and every member of your team. 
Whether you are a bartender, barback, or manager, or completely new to the industry, Diageo Bar Academy has easy to access resources to help you learn new skills or stay in the loop with all the latest industry trends. Stay informed, inspired, and connected to grow your career or business by joining Diageo Bar Academy today. Why wait? Visit diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Restaurants across the country are reopening, and as an owner, it's more important than ever to focus on your guest experience. That's why I recommend Pop Menu, which gives restaurant owners the marketing tools to turn new guests into happy regulars. Pop Menu transforms your restaurant's online presence with dynamic, user-friendly menu technology on your website, including real-time menu updates. And Pop Menu is more than just an online menu. It's an all-in-one set of digital tools that help strengthen the relationship between you and your customer, enabling you to cater your website to your guests, whether they want to order online and get delivery or venture out for safe in-person dining with contactless menus. And with Pop Menu's remarketing tools, you can stop letting third-party platforms Feel the relationship with your guests and stay top of mind. If you're a restaurant owner, start using Pop Menu today. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com hrn. Go now to get your $100 off your first month at popmenu.com hrn. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Ellen Yin. She's the co-founder and owner of High Street Hospitality Group, which includes A Kitchen Plus Bar, Fork, High Street Philly, High Street Provisions, and those are all in Philadelphia, and she has High Street on Hudson in Manhattan. So Ellen, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. All right, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. (laughs) I figured you'd say (laughs) that. (laughs) Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Hmm. Uh, Chef's counter? Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Hmm. Um, well, that's a tough one, so that can't be a short answer, but um, <laughs> I- I'm going to say tipping. Okay. I know that one usually stumps people a little bit. Okay. How about Pats or Geno's? Hmm. Going local. I don't, I don't eat cheesesteaks, but... <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did a taste test once when I was there. I don't really eat them that much either, but for me, like, it's one of those, when you're in Philly, that that, <laughs> that touristy thing to do. Well, the true sandwich is really the roast pork, but that can be a whole other discussion. <laughs> yes. Okay. We'll save that for another time. Okay. How about um, dining with Pichet or eating his desserts? Dining with Pichet. Sorry. I love his desserts, but he's such a character. He is a character. <laughs> Probably dining with Bichet and having his desserts, right? That's a bonus, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Mm. I do love both, but I'm gonna say I'm gonna say dessert. All right. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Philadelphia? Oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's a, that's a, that I can't answer that one on Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> hey, so rules. Man- <laughs> you can skip it. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I can't choose. It's like choosing between children. Is that? It is exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah. All, right. All right, no problem. Well, that's the game. You were very speedy um, <laughs> up until when you, skipping the final one. <laughs> That's a tough question because people do ask me that all the time. And, and I do really love our location in Manhattan. And I do also love Brooklyn. But, um, but you know, I have lived in Philadelphia since I was 18 years old. So I really can't say that um, I don't love Philadelphia first. But, um, but, you know, New York would be my, you know, my equal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I hear you. Okay, for industry news, um, two articles. First is on Bloomberg, we ate 11 Madison Park's $335 vegan menu, and here is what it's like. What you can expect if you're one of the 15,000 people on the wait list, and this was by Kate Crater. I can't believe they have a wait list of 15,000 people, but... um, (laughs) Well, clearly they are delivering what customers want. Yeah, well, at least this, for the first 15,000. Yeah, this has been big news. You know, 11 Madison Park reopened on June 10th and they went all vegan, which is a change for the restaurant. This is chef, chef and owner Daniel Hoon's place. Um, it's pricey. It's very pricey. Um, but apparently they have the clientele. I, I mean, what's your what's your take on um, going all vegan? Is it something you would do? Well, um, I'm not vegan, but um, but I do see why people would be attracted to that. Plant-based food food diets are um, extremely um, in right now, and um, you know I do think it's um, something that people can't do at home. Um, you know, Eleven Madison Park is so much about the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the room, it's the service, it's the entire experience. Um, so I'm not sure whether or not it matters whether it's vegan or not, but um, for me at least, you know, I just take it all in. And for me, and maybe that's why I'm a restaurateur, not a chef, that I feel that it's about the experience that you're getting, not necessarily about 100% about what you're eating. That's just icing on the cake for me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And that, yes, it is It is so much about the experience and the times I've been there. It's been incredible. Um, this, uh, you know, I'm looking at this, they have a, 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 the full menu they were saying with two people without drinks would cost seven, $730. There's a, also a six course menu for $175 that's at the bar, which, um, I think, you know, sounds like, uh, uh, something I, I may try to do first if I could get in, but um, the food is looks beautiful. I have to say, right. anyone who wants to see what's uh, get a little peek of what's happening there, go to this Bloomberg article because it's it's like stunning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that that's part of the experience, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to be quite honest, uh, you know, I think that um, uh. To do something like that really takes a lot of guts um, to pull a complete change. But also, I think it makes a point about the um, what it takes to operate a restaurant these days. You know, I mean, um, it's it's not just the cost of the vegetables; it's the intellectual property of you know this creative team who put in a ton of time and effort to create this beautiful experience. It's an a piece of artwork, you know, it's not really um, about uh, what you necessarily crave or whatever, but it is stunningly gorgeous and um, uh, something that people will definitely have never experienced before. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, I think that in alignment with the fact that labor, the cost of labor is going to be increasing if we want to create a more equitable and fair environment for people. Um, you know, hopefully some of that $700 is going to cover um, their amazing staff. Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, you're, it's, it's way more than just the food on the plate of it's the experience. I think this meal from what I've said, I've seen is it's, it's four or five hours. It's, it's your night out. It's, it's theater, it's entertainment. It's, it's, um, it's very special. I mean, 
very specific, right, not, not like an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody is going to want it, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think that people who appreciate um, dining, certainly mm-hmm. it's an experience that I definitely want to try, even though I'm not a tasting menu type person. Yeah. 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 And, and as I said, I would do the bar first, but I mean, if I would like, I would love to do the whole experience, but you know, we'll see, we'll see in time if, um, and also how he changes the menu, you know, over, right. um, so, um, well, once, I mean, like after 15,000 people, I don't know, it might be next, <laughs> next June before I can get in. We'll see, we'll see, but good, good for them. Um, it looks fantastic. So, um, anyone, yeah who can get in, go and enjoy. Um, the other article I had was on Eater New York and it's just about uh, the, the what's happened today that um, the, the article is, or yesterday, that it's entitled mm-hmm. New York lifts restaurant restrictions as adult COVID-19 vaccination rates surpass 70%. Restaurants and bars no longer have to abide to social distancing regulations, according to the state. This was by Erica Adams. Um, so apparently in, in um, California, uh, this, uh, you know, it's, I think it's so interesting that California and New York at the exact same time um, lifted these restrictions because both have over 70% of the population at least partially vaccinated. So um, yeah, it's, it's incredible news. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. I think people are excited to be out and kind of feeling things getting back to more normal or whatever the new normal is. But um, what's happening in Philly with restrictions? Well, Philadelphia has been a little bit more conservative, but um, but Philadelphia, um, 70 percent of adults are partially vaccinated. And I think 54 percent of um, Philadelphia residents are fully vaccinated as of Monday is what I heard. Um, and, um, you know, I have to give the um, the healthcare workers in Philadelphia a ton of credit because, you know, you would think that it's easy to, to hit that number, but they actually have been going almost door to door. They have a $50,000 sweepstakes to try to close the gap on um, the 70%. Uh, so they're being really creative about trying to get as many people vaccinated. And the, the, the challenging part is, you know, the, the pockets of um, areas in, in, you know, any urban environment where, you know, um, maybe people can't get to, um, they, they had a mass vaccination center in downtown Philadelphia. Well, if you can't get there because you have to take a bus and the subway and then walk, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's a, disincentive sometimes and even though you know for some of us that that wouldn't make a difference we would just go I mean I, I drove to New Jersey to get vaccinated um, but um, uh, we went to City Field <laughs> yeah, right exactly yeah. um, uh, you know I, I was vaccinated I was lucky enough to be vaccinated early because my mother's compromised and so I was able to get uh, get it early so that's why I left the city but yeah. um, but um I think that um, Philadelphia, we we don't have restrictions as well. And the problem isn't really the restrictions anymore. The problem is whether or not you have enough staff to cover the amount of, you know, tables and chairs and business that you have. And that has that is going to be the biggest challenge. Um, You know, you know, people said that, um, you know, you could increase your occupancy from 50 to 75 percent. Actually, we, you know, we haven't been able to get past 75 percent because we're still trying to hire people in the kitchen, back of the house, front of the house. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's I, it's a challenge. I know. I know. I, I every I know my clients are all saying that everyone's saying that it's it's not just it's everywhere. And I, I wish I had a solution, you know, I feel we, because, um, yeah, we need to get more, more, more staff in, in well, all areas. I mean, I think that, um, there's, there's so many factors related to that, but, um, we've been lucky enough to have some young people be part of our team and, um, uh, you know, Typically, I don't have that many college students, but right now I have like three or four college students that we are we are developing. I just feel like hospitality is one of those industries that um, it prepares you for anything in life. You know what I mean? 
it's never going to hurt you. And, um, you know, your ability to deal with people, to be able to multitask, to be able to handle pressure. I mean, all those things are really, really important. And it's heartbreaking that it's so hard to find people. But, um, uh, you know, I also feel like, you know, our industry in March, all the frailties of the restaurant industry were revealed. And then a third of the people who were already out the door, and there's always a third of the people who have their foot out the door to either become an artist, to become an actor, to um, get your real estate license, to, you know, have a baby, whatever, you know, just like customers, you, you always have a yeah. percentage who are moving or whatever. And, um, and then you have a third of the people who love working like me and who we didn't ever stop. And then you have a third of the people who maybe for whatever reason, they don't feel comfortable yet. And I have to say that sometimes I walk into a room where there's a ton of people and I even feel uncomfortable a little bit, but I know that I've been vaccinated, but still there's this just kind of disconnect between how quickly there's no masks required and, mm -hmm. and you know, and um, how many people are in the space because you don't know whether everybody's been vaccinated or not. But Anyway, um, I'm excited. I can't wait to, you know, yesterday we took our team out to a winery and, you know, everybody was mask free and, you know, we felt really comfortable and it just felt nice to be out and about. But going back to the labor situation, uh, you know, I think that rebuilding that um, that third um, from people who may not have been considered previously as candidates for our industry um, is really important. And that not only includes, um, you know, um, people who have left other industries, younger people who are in high school and college still, and, you know, may not even know to consider hospitality as an option. Um, and, um, you know, um, people re-entering the workforce yeah. from, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah. prison or whatever, you know. Yeah, all, all, all great points. And I've always thought that everyone should work in a restaurant at some point in their life. I just think you, you just to get the experience. And as you said, you learn so much uh, different skills. And um, yeah, it's good to be in a service position. So, all right. Uh, it's time for my solar dining experience. So this week it's at La Natural. Here's the rundown. The location 7289 Northwest 2nd Avenue, Little River, Miami, Florida. The concept, it's a neighborhood restaurant serving sourdough pizza, vegetables, and natural wines in a relaxed indoor and outdoor space. The owner is Javier Ramirez and his wife, Adriana Matos. Why did I go? Well, I heard wonderful things about this place. I had met Javier at the Philly Chef Conference back in 2020, mm -hmm. right before the pandemic. Right. So, yeah, so I had a little connection with him, and this was his new place that he got open during the pandemic. So, and I was down for South Beach Wine and Food Festival, so I decided to go. My experience, I made a reservation on Talk, one of our wonderful sponsors of this show, and uh, my reservation was a, a late-ish. Uh, I arrived from the beach, uh, and I, well, not from the beach, but I left South Beach to to go to this restaurant, which is in a kind of up and coming neighborhood in Miami. Um, I was warmly greeted. The place was busy. It had a good vibe. My server was lovely. I ordered. I saw Javier there and his wife, and it was it was it was really nice. I had a good a good time. What did I get? So I got smoked oyster mushrooms with salsa verde as a starter, and then I got the tomato burrata and basil pizza. And their pizza is naturally leavened. It says forty eight hour cold ferment. And um, they also offered me a little coffee at the end. My take. So I loved it. The mushrooms were delicious. Uh, they have a lot of great veggies on there. It was kind of hard to choose which one to get. But being solo, that is, uh, that is, I guess, the the drawback of it is I can't, I can't get as many things as I want to get because I can only eat so much. So um, my pizza was fabulous. I didn't finish the, quite the whole thing, but I loved it. I, you know, warm burrata on top. It had a really nice dough and crust. Um, I really, it was, it was great. The ambiance, it's a warm and inviting casual space with low light and has a front patio. Say so it's perfect for pizza or veggie lovers. Interesting tidbit. Javier also owns Palmar Restaurant in Miami, and he was a previous partner with Bashore. Personal fun fact. 
uh, when I was speaking with Javier, he told me that the vegetable plates were actually recipes from a chef uh, whose name is Diego Moya of Racines in New York City. And I know Diego and I've been to his restaurant. He's a wonderful chef. So I I get why. I mean, it's it was a great call, I think, for them to have him do the, the veggie plates. Um, so the cost of this meal was $40. That's not including tax, but it is including gratuity. On the menu, it says the prices allow them to compensate for the staff. It also had a little nice note there saying the best way to express gratitude is to become a regular guest. So I really like that. Would I go back? Yes. Mom and dad down in Miami, put this on your radar. Send, send you there. Maybe I'll go with you next time I'm down. Website is lanaturalmiami.com and their Instagram is at lanaturalmiami. There we go. That sounds, that sounds great. It was great. Yeah. I'll have to go there when I, if I go to Florida. Yeah. To it's a little, it's like, as I said, like kind of off, it's, it's not, it's, it's a little North of where the design district is. It's um, Miami is interesting because uh, different neighborhoods keep, keep developing restaurants and turning into these like neighborhood restaurant communities. Um, from when I grew up, um, like these, these areas weren't, weren't destination. So. Got it. Um, yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't know you were from Miami. I am from Miami. Yeah. From hometown, <laughs> which is why I usually go down to South Beach food and wine festival because, um, it's like, it makes sense. Family work beach. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's a good combo. Um, okay, so it's time for the final question. My next guest is Josh Sharkey. He's the founder and CEO of Mees, which is M-E-E-Z, and it's the recipe tool for professional chefs. So, Ellen, what would you like to ask Josh? Well, I would love to know how he got buy-in from his first chef, because I, I see that um, being an incredible tool. Um, but there are a lot of chefs in small restaurants. Um, you know, we do recipe now, but, um, you know, in not all of our places do we have a formal recipe program. And a lot of times chefs say that they don't have enough time to do it. But meanwhile, the most important thing as a chef is to create consistency and um, be able to replicate whatever recipe that you're making over and over and over again. Um, and so I would love to know what kind of um, pushback he got and how he overcame that. Mm, great question. I will find out. And um, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. I I wish we had more time to talk. There's we 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 didn't get to so many things that it would I, about your your restaurant group that I would have loved to dive into. But um, I'm glad we touched we 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 covered you know quite quite enough I guess or we got through some of it. Um, but I'm so impressed with you, and I have to say also my tip today with supporting women in the workplace. I was thinking of you. I know you You do a lot with organizations and supporting women and mentorship, and uh, it's very credible. Well, it's, uh, it's really important, as you said. And um, actually today, I just um, uh, was involved with a, a panel with Hot Bread Kitchen, and it's just so inspiring what they're doing um, in terms of workforce development, but also support for women who you maybe just need that emotional and um, mental support in addition to like, um, you know, learning how to um, build their own business. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And yeah, you're very involved in it's, I, yeah, again, I don't know how you do everything you do, but somehow you're, you're, you're doing it and I wish you much continued success and I hope things get easier this year and, and, to see yeah, I can't wait for a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you deserve one. So Thank you, Sherry. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. My guest today has been Ellen Yin. She's the co-founder and owner of High Street Hospitality Group, which includes A Kitchen Plus Bar, Fork, High Street Philly, and High Street Provisions in Philadelphia, and High Street on Hudson in Manhattan. Her website is highstreethospitality.com, and that's H-I-G-H hospitality.com. Follow her. All of her accounts are on social media. There's 
High ST NYC, High ST Philly, at Fork Street, uh, or sorry, at Fork Restaurant, and well, most important, the real Ellen Yin. Follow her there. Follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. So you can find us anywhere you can find podcasts. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Ellen and to her fabulous publicists, Gia and Bailey. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well. And thanks for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.